Hi, my name is Amy. And my name is James. And this is How I Learned to Love Shrimp, a podcast about promising ways to help animals and build the animal advocacy movement. In today's episode, we spoke to Carolina about founding and growing an animal organization in the Global South. Carolina shares her experience of leadership in a growing entity and the importance of progressing animal advocacy in Asia and South America through her work at Synergia Animal. Please let us know what you think and share with anyone you think could be interested to hear. And remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes. Enjoy. Well, hello and welcome to the next episode of How I Learned to Love Shrimp. We're joined today by Carolina Galvani, who is the founder and executive director of Synergia Animal, an animal charity evaluator's standout charity working in nine countries of the global south. Carolina is Brazilian and has 20 years of experience in advocacy, fundraising, strategic planning, management and campaigning. And before founding Synergia, she worked in more than 30 countries as an investigative journalist for various animal welfare, environmental and social justice organizations. Amazing bio. Uh, Welcome, Carolina. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. It's a great pleasure to be here. And thanks for everybody uh, who will be listening to this. Yeah, thanks for joining. Um, And yeah, we like to start everything off with with a first question, which is basically, if you personally received fifty thousand uh, dollars, how would you spend this personally to help animals? And often people talk about their own organizations, but ideally you can think about things outside of synergy. Obviously, I know you guys are doing many amazing things, but yeah, outside of that would be ideal. Yeah, I think um, I'm I'm very passionate about uh, making the movement grow in the global south. Um, mm. As as we know it, um, um, uh, global south countries or or developing countries are the ones that are leading the growth in in animal consumption the most. And we have to remember that the the movement is usually uh, very small and very new in this country. So we need to make um, a lot of efforts to to build capacity and and to make the movement grow. And also uh, historically, um, we don't have like many wins for for farmed animals in this country so we are mm. starting the work um, there are many challenges but um, i'm also very excited to see that that there are more and more organizations um, being founded in these countries or expanding to this country so that's that's where i would donate to um, to charities that have um, effective and and uh, interventions in in global south countries Amazing. Is there anyone that perhaps isn't on um, everyone's radar already that you know of that is a particularly promising up and coming organization? Uh, there, there are many uh, organizations in Latin America that are part of the Open Wing Alliance. So I, I would check mm. the Open Wing Alliance uh, website and, and there are some great names there. And also in Asia, we see uh, many organizations joining. Uh, I'm talking about the, the Open Wing Alliance because it's probably the largest coalition. It's and it's where you can get uh, more names and and more ideas to to donate if you want to donate to to the Global South. Yeah, nice one. Thank you. And in terms of your journey into animal advocacy, can you tell us kind of how you got interested in this work? And you've been obviously working in this space for a long time. And how did you first get into it? And what, what did your journey look like as it progressed? So I, I grew up in Brazil. I am Brazilian. And I, I grew up seeing um, a lot of uh, social injustices and a lot of inequalities. Um, my first degree was in economics. 
And when I was at university already, I decided that I want to dedicate it, uh, to dedicate my life to creating um, a more just uh, world, um, uh, especially for people who are um, minoritized or, or not privileged. And um, after that, I moved to London and I decided to study uh, journalism. Uh, I did a master's degree in journalism. And when I finished, I, I started working for an investigative agency uh, that provided uh, services to many different NGOs, as, as you saw, uh, as you heard from, from my bio. Yeah. And uh, most of these assignments uh, were about uh, factory farming. So I, I saw many factory farms and I think I saw uh, most uh, species being slaughtered as well. I, I've been to many slaughterhouses. Wow. Um, so that, of course, uh, changed my life forever. I, I didn't know anything about factory farming before I started doing this work. And it was truly uh, shocking and heartbreaking. Mm. But I also... Um, saw many other uh, problems related to factory farming. So I saw uh, vast amounts of land being deforested in Latin America to grow um, grains uh, to, to feed animals. And I also visited um, many indigenous and um, uh, indigenous communities and communities of small farmers who were uh, deeply harmed uh, by by crop production as well, that mm. is related to livestock. So for me, it became uh, very clear that when you decide uh, to fight uh, factory farming, uh, you will be helping animals, but you will also be fighting uh, many other like social um, justice um, uh, problems or, or issues. So yeah, yeah. for me, you, 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 make it, you can make a huge difference when you choose uh, this cause um, yeah, to work at, with. I feel like that's often a misconception, actually, that, you know, we're like choosing animals to help animals over humans when actually so many of the animal caused issues like, you know, deforestation for feed or the environment that the workers are in or like you say, affecting indigenous communities. I feel like often those areas aren't as um, as clear from the animal space. So, um, yeah, that's that's really interesting insight. Um, and so then you found how long after that was it that you decided to found Synergia? Yeah, so I started working um, with this agency in 2006 and I kept working uh, there until 2013. Mm. And that's when I, I came back to Brazil. Um, I worked for uh, two different animal protection organizations here. Um, and when I was in Europe, of course, I saw uh, a lot of progress being made uh, uh, for farmed animals. I think that's where we have uh, yeah, uh, the, the best progress in the world when we talk about farmed animals. And then when I came back to Brazil, the beginning was very hard because we didn't have many organizations uh, working with the cause here. But then we saw uh, many uh, groups coming to Brazil, expanding their work uh, in Brazil. And we started seeing a lot of progress as well, especially in terms of um, securing uh, corporate commitments to reduce the suffering of pigs first and then um, laying hands. 
Okay. And then I started to think that, well, what about the other Latin American countries? Nothing similar uh, is being done there. And and that was the idea um, to create Synergia Animal. Like we actually started working more in other Latin American countries than in Brazil. Mm. And later on, we decided to expand to Southeast Asia as well, which is also a very uh, neglected region. And on the side back to the journalism piece, why was it that you ended up working on factory farming related journalism? Because I guess there's so many things you could have gone investigate on. Like, was it kind of you were assigned to that or you were like somewhat interested in it? Or how did that process even happen? I was assigned uh, to, to, yeah, to, to factory farming. Uh, I think mm. a lot of the, the clients uh, of the agency that I used to work at were animal protection organizations. So we had, um, yeah, we were assigned uh, to, okay, to go interesting. to factory farms and slaughterhouses. Mm. Wow. Oh, were you like, were you resistant to that at first or how, when that first happened, I know this maybe many years ago, were you nervous or like excited or how, how did that even feel? Yeah, I remember like when, when I sat down to, to talk to, to, um, to the agency for the first time, they told me that um, they were planning to go to Portugal. So they needed an interpreter and that's, that's how um, they chose me. Um, um and they were like, well, we are going to investigate factory farms. And I was like, factory farms? Farms that look like factories? <laughs> <laughs> it sounded like really, really strange because um, I grew up in the countryside in Brazil. So I was very used to seeing animals in, mm. in green fields. That's all I saw uh, before um, I started doing this work. And then they asked me, so, but would, will you be able to be there? Will you be able to witness animals in um, suffering and being slaughtered? And uh, because I grew up in the countryside in Brazil, I, I used to go to, to a cattle farm um, on my winter holiday. So I, I did see a lot of animal exploitation and slaughter, uh, even when I was a kid. Wow. Um, I didn't see it as a problem. Uh, so for me, it was, I think it, yeah, it helped me a lot to be able to witness everything that I have witnessed. But of course, when you see it on, a, on an industrial scale, I think it's impossible not to see it as a problem. Uh, so my perspective uh, changed uh, quite a lot. Yeah, I can imagine that. Wow. And has and you said you used to you used to go to a farm on like school holidays. Is mm-hmm. that something that was like family ran or? Yes, it was my auntie's farm. Wow. Wow. Uh, what, what do they think of the work you're doing now? Are they broadly supportive or uh, unsure? Uh, my family has changed a lot, and I think they're they're very proud. Yeah. Mm. Uh, in the beginning, I think especially um, my mother, she was very concerned when I was doing investigative work. Um, so I used to tell her before, after I finished the assignments, I, I would tell her I went to this country and I did that, <laughs> but not before. <laughs> Um, sure. And I understand her, of course. I think most um, uh, mothers would be concerned. Uh, but I think now she's just very happy and, and she's very proud um, uh, to see, like, um, yeah, especially like the, the creation of Synergia and how much we have mm. uh, grown, in, uh, grown in, in the last year, last years. Um, yeah, so I think my, my close uh, family, my brothers as well, they're very proud and very supportive. Very cool. Amazing. And most of them are flexitarians, vegetarians, and vegans now. So Nice, nice. nice. It's, it's always good when you get a family member. It's always the hardest people to get on side, but when it does happen, <laughs> yeah. even better. 
Um, and then in the end, in terms of Synergy, then you were saying it's grown a lot in the past few years. And I think now I think there's like uh, 53 or so people across nine countries. And then do you want to maybe share kind of what the main focus of your work is now and the kind of campaigns you guys run and where most of your time and energy goes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so most of our time, energy and resources go into um, corporate campaigns that try to reduce the suffering of, of farmed animals. So in most countries, um, we, we try to convince um, major food companies to phase out the use of battery cages for, for mm. laying hands. Uh, uh, so this is where the movement is in, in most global South countries. We still have a lot of work to do in terms of uh, freeing animals from cages. It's, it's very different to what we see in Europe, in the U.S., for example, that this, um, uh, a lot of these commitments have been secured already and groups are working with broilers or chickens raised for meat. Mm. So, yeah, the strongest focus is on, on, on freeing um, hands uh, from cages. The only exception is Brazil. Uh, in Brazil, we already have uh, many strong organizations working with cage-free campaigns. So in Brazil, we work with pig and dairy welfare, uh, also trying to convince major corporations to, to change um, uh, their practices in their supply chains. Um, so I think I would say that um, the, yeah, reducing suffering, the suffering in the corporate uh, sector is about consumes about 70% of our resources. Mm. Uh, but we also have our food policy or diet change department. Uh, and uh, we are seeing uh, very exciting progress, uh, especially with our institutional meat reduction campaigns. So institutional meat reduction is about talking, uh, trying to convince institutions to reduce their consumption of animal products. Usually this is done by uh, inviting them to only serve uh, plant-based meals in their restaurants once a week. And um, I'm very excited, especially about Argentina and Colombia. Uh, In Argentina, the last commitment we got will cover 150 schools. Uh, So just one commitment cover 150 schools so it's and and this commitment is from like a a regional government or it's from like a school district or who did that come from it's a school district very cool super exciting and in colombia we also have many commitments from from large universities so it's also very exciting uh and we are also seeing the first commitments coming in thailand and indonesia so Mm. yeah i think um yeah I'm, i'm very excited to see progress there uh, we also run vegan challenges for consumers in Latin America and Asia. Uh, we also see that as a as a strategy to build the movement. Uh, we we need, uh, yeah, we get many emails every month, and we continue uh, we continue to send emails and engage people uh, that take part in the challenges, so they become our supporters and our activists as well. And we also work with investigations that are uh, usually uh, related to our corporate campaigns. So we try to expose uh, factory farms. Um, and I think this work is, is really important in the countries where we are because factory yeah. farms had never been exposed before in, in most of them. It's so interesting to give kind of, as you said, in your own experience of not really knowing or understanding the scale of factory farming. I think we see that so often where, 
you imagine a farm as being outdoors and there not being that many animals. And then actually when you're first exposed to factory farming, it's a, a very different story. Um, interesting. And, and um, do you feel like you have a, a sense of an end game with, with Synergy Animal? How, how far in advance is your, uh, does your theory of change expand? Yeah, I'm, I'm usually a very optimistic person and I think you have to be optimistic when, when you're doing mm-hmm. this type of work. If, if you don't believe you are going to create change, you will never get there. Right. Uh, so that, that's a very important <laughs> mindset. Uh, but I, I do think that we are at the very beginning of it. Uh, we still have a lot of work to do. And uh, when we look at, for example, um, cage-free um corporate commitments, for example, we are being able to secure these commitments, but we also know that we will have to work quite a bit to make them be implemented. So it's, it's the very beginning. Uh, we, it's very hard to predict how companies will behave. Uh, so yeah, and then when we have like all the other species as well, here we're only talking about laying hands, but right. what about all the other species, including fish? So I think there is a lot of work to do. Uh, I'm very excited to see the progress we are being able to achieve. Um, but I think we have to we have to remain optimistic, but also very persistent. Uh, I think yeah, we, we'll have to keep working on this for for many many years. Um, and I I also think we will have to see many different strategies being combined. I don't think one single strategy will be able to end uh, factory farming. Mm. Uh, yeah, so I think it, it's an ongoing experiment and, and we have to see how institutions and societies react. Uh, yeah, and we have to have to keep thinking about new strategies or adapting this, the strategies we have. But overall, very, very positive, very optimistic. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it will be a long fight. Yeah, for sure. And when you talk about different um, working in parallel with different projects, do you mean so like the corporate stuff as well as the vegan outreach and the reduction campaigns? Or do you mean outside of that cause area? So things like environmental messaging and, um, as you were saying before, thinking about, you know, wider community work that animal agriculture also influences. Do you think it's also bringing those groups in from the outside? Yes, uh, I, I think we have to work with related causes, um, especially in, in the countries where we are. Uh, so, for example, we conducted um, consumer research in Asia. And, uh, for example, for Thailand, it was very clear that the best way to get people started, to get people to care about the issue is to talk about health and not necessarily mm. about animals. And right. in Indonesia, the trend was that uh, people would be very interested to learn more if it was related to environmental issues. Mm. So I think we, we need to be very aware uh, and we need to, to conduct research to see the starting point because the starting point is not that easy. Yeah. And I, I think we also need to think about like the species. I, I, I do agree with the principles of effective altruism mm. and I do think that our interventions should be focused on 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 uh, on numbers like the the maximum uh, the, the largest number of animals we can help but mm. we also have to think that historically that's not how it was done for example in Europe like there was a very strong focus on mammals 
for example, and and we do see that on social media very clearly. It's much easier to get empathy towards a pig or a cow than towards chicken. So I think when we talk about education, uh, we, we really have to broaden uh, the, the scope uh, and, and talk about all animals to get people engaged yeah. and, and other uh, related issues like environment and health, human health. Yeah, I think, I think that's a great point because, like you said, even though um, fish or invertebrate animals might, might outnumber vertebrate land animals that are killed for food by many orders, it's if we can't have reasonable campaigns that actually help them because either companies don't care about their welfare or maybe there's not good asks or maybe the consumers aren't interested, then it's like it's hard to know what we should do about this. So there's this yeah, other argument, which is we'll kind of start with the kind of the easy winnable, whether it's species or campaigns, and hopefully expand moral circles until we hopefully can include all species of animals. Um, do you think that's something that is like kind of shadowed in your work or like kind of reflected in your work? Yes, I, th I think when we do, for example, uh, social media uh, work and also when when we send messages to our um, um, groups of activists, we try to uh, to cover different things. We do, like if we keep repeating the same message and, and talking about laying hands all the time, we know that uh, people will not be so engaged. Right. Uh, so I think it, it's more like when we talk about education and engagement, we need um, to cover other species as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's that would be the answer. Yeah, that makes sense. And maybe one thing you didn't mention in your programs, as I just saw on your website, was um, you have this mention of do, doing campaigns against financial institutions, particularly one aimed at the World Bank um, in terms of not funding factory farms. And I think that's something that, very few other animal groups are doing that I've seen of. Can you maybe share more about that and what that project looks like? Sure. So we we have a campaign. It's a coalition with um, other animal protection, but also environmental and social social justice um, organizations. Uh, so what we do, we are we are asking major development banks like the World Bank, the IFC, and all the other uh, regional ones to stop funding uh, factory farming. Um, so last year, uh, it, it this is a very challenging campaign, and I think it's also a, it's going to be a, a, it's going to take us some time to get there. But um, mm. but I'm I'm really excited because last year we had our first victory. So the Inter-American Development Bank was about to decide if they would renew a loan to Marfrig, which is one of the largest meat producers in Brazil. And we did a lot of mobilization. Uh, and we also exposed the fact that it's not only about animals, like this company has been previously involved with um, conflicts in indigenous territories and deforestation. Right. And... Um, uh, the Inter-American Development Bank decided not to renew uh, the law. Amazing. And also right now, um, the, the IFC, which is the private arm of the World Bank, is about to decide if they will give um, a $30 million loan um, to uh, one, one of the largest dairy producers in Brazil, which is called Alvora Lactius. And we are asking them to stop the loan. We conducted inv an investigation that shows that animal welfare practices are very poor in the supply mm. chain uh, of, of our lactose. So they have um, 
male calves um, confined in 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 crates that are very small, like they're, they would even be considered illegal in the European Union. Like some of them are really? not um, big enough for the animals to turn around um, in, a, in an easy way. It's hard for them to, to turn around. Uh, we also have a huge problem in Brazil, which is that uh, male calves are being discarded. Uh, hmm. Some of them are being killed illegally and others are being killed in slaughterhouses that don't have people who are properly trained to stun them correctly, for example, that was exposed in the investigation as well. And of course, mutilations without any pain relief. So there are many uh, welfare problems there and we exposed it. It was launched uh, last week. Wow, um, congrats. Yeah, yeah they're going to vote exciting. on May 10. Uh, I don't think this is going to be uh, released before the, the investigation, uh, before they vote, but yeah. The, 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 the campaign website is www.stoptheloan.com. And with the one in Brazil that you had the victory, um, how do you think that affects the company? Is it, is it for you, is it just about exposure and um, obviously cutting the money off at the source, but then that company is free to, you know, find another investor, I guess, we're just shifting, you know, who that is. So is the main goal um, just about, that kind of disruption and the the sense of giving them that information and pulling the finance away, um, perhaps over the the kind of more long term goal of actually defunding the system. Um, I think it's both. Yeah. So I th I think what what we are trying to do, like the, is to send a message that funding um, uh, these operations with. Uh, taxpayers' money, because uh, development banks are funded by our money, is not right. acceptable. It's not what development should look like. Uh, uh, you know, a sector that causes uh, so many environmental problems, social problems, and that exploits animals in a very um, cruel way should not receive our money. I think that yeah. that's a message that we need to send. Uh, and of course, um, it's also about making the expansion of factory farming harder. Uh, if they mm. don't get this loan and they have to look for other sources, it will make it harder. So I think that these are the, the, the key things uh, that we are trying to achieve. Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds like such a cool strategy. And I'm almost surprised that no one else is working on this because I think everyone agrees that once like factory farming is expanded overseas and is kind of up and going, it's quite hard to rein it back in. But if we can actually slow or even stop the growth of factory farming in other countries, that's even better. And do you know why other groups maybe aren't working on this or it's like a fairly like neglected strategy within the animal movement? Uh, we, we have other uh, animal protection uh, groups working on it. Um, for example, World Animal Protection is part of the coalition. Um, I also think Humane Society International and Compassion in World Farming um, have similar efforts. Um, yeah, and I, I wouldn't be able to say why others are not doing this as well. I think there, there are still some doubts in terms of how effective this will be um, mm -hmm. and how much time it will take us to, yeah, to create change. But I, I, I agree that it's very promising. And as I said in the beginning, I think we need to try uh, different strategies, uh, especially 
in countries that are harder to secure wins with the interventions we already have, I think we, we need to try different, different strategies. Yeah, I think that diversification of strategies is really key. Okay, uh, maybe moving on to the countries within which you work more specifically. Um, so about your placement and the kind of movement strategy in the region that you um, work within. How do you think that the topic of animal agriculture and working on this issue um, differs in the regions that you work within comparatively to perhaps Europe or the US? Do you find any key challenges or key differences in how your organization is required to operate comparatively to um, others in the space? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, th I think the, the main difference is the state of the movement uh, and the size of the movement as well. So um, in in a lot in many of these countries, we are the the only organization using uh, pressure, for example, to secure um, corporate wins, uh, and that of course make makes things more challenging. And when we look at European countries or or the U.S., we have many organizations. Uh, using similar strategies, and that speeds progress um, quite a lot. Um, yeah. I think um, another um, difference is that um, our uh, the laws, um, when we talk about uh, freedom of speech and the right to protest, the legislation in some of these countries is more restrictive or challenging. So just to give... Um, one example, in, in one of the countries where we work recently, uh, we have to inform the police that we are going to protest and not only inform, but also to give details about how the protest is, is going to be like, what is the message we are going to send, uh, which to me, like, for example, in Brazil, we don't have to do that. I, I, I don't think we should be requested to do that, for example, but mm. in some countries we, we have to do that. Yeah. And the, the answer we got from the police was that we could not expose a company in a public square because that wow. would be unfair blaming. So we had to remove the name of the company uh, from the protest wow. materials. <laughs> so you, but you, you can still do the protest and you just say, well, how would you frame it if you can't use the company's name saying this industry is bad or how does it have to be, be messaged? Yeah, well, we, we, we did a general protest about um, the issue, which is that um, hands are confined in battery cages and, and that's very mm. cruel. And we had flyers and a banner with a QR code that would um, give more information about the campaign, including the companies okay. that we are asking to change. So. Mm. It's so interesting. I've I feel like I remember speaking with Anna from uh, the Humane League in Mexico about um, egg laying hens and saying that um, in Mexico there isn't the same kind of regulation as we take for granted, I think, in, in Europe in particular for um, how we stamp the eggs to classify them, whether they're from a cage source or um, organic and the, the egg having the stamp on that not only does that not exist in Mexico, but it's not regulated. So you could just put a stamp on to say, yeah, it's free range, but it's not, it's from like a caged source. So um, yeah, I feel like the different um, 
challenges you have to overcome um, are really important to report on. And I think that's why, um, yeah, I'm, I'm particularly interested to get your insight today for us to just understand the state of the movement there and the complexities that you experience within the campaign work that you do and how we can also learn from them to diversify tactics and have to come at the same issue, but just from a different angle. Um, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. And, and there are also some other challenges, for example, um, as you said, there, uh, we, we have this, a similar problem, uh, in many countries that eggs are not labeled, um, okay. in a very, uh, yeah, they, they can be misleading. Like it's, it's common to find in, in many of the countries where we work, you know, egg uh, boxes that show, uh, chickens in, in green fields when they're actually confined in cages. And, and before we were working in these countries, nobody would, um, yeah, uh, do anything about it. Uh, so we right. also have, uh, projects to make, um, uh, egg labeling mandatory according to production systems. So for example, in Argentina, we have a bill, uh, we are trying to secure legislation because there are problems there. And also like when, when we conduct uh, uh, consumer research, we also see that, for example, we are a vegan organization, so we don't, we don't uh, promote the consumption of cage-free eggs. Our messaging is more that cages are cruel and they need to end mm, and yeah. invite people not to consume animal products at the same time. Uh, but what we learned is that, especially in Asia, for example, consumers don't know. They don't know what cage-free means. Right. And and they want to learn more about why cage-free would be better for animals. And they also have like a lot of misconceptions, for example. They believe that cage-free hands will be totally free. They'll run away. They will be killed hmm. by predators or they won't find uh, food <laughs> and they will starve to death. So uh, oh there is a lot of education work to do, and that of course makes our uh, our work uh, more challenging. And also, like when we work with the with the media, for example, I remember in in one Latin American country uh, when we launched our first investigation exposing the egg industry. Uh, one of the main media outlets, they, they didn't talk to us, they didn't interview us, and all they did was to get the head of the, the Egg Producers Association to say that it was all a big lie and very old footage and it didn't represent the egg industry at all. And we didn't have the, the, the right to reply. We asked for it and wow. we didn't have the right to reply. So wow. the, the reactions can be very strong and, and very biased in, in this country. So that's also uh, a challenge. Yeah. So sometimes we can be ridiculed by the media or get no attention or we are attacked and we did, don't we don't even have the, the right to reply. So that <laughs> makes it harder as well. Where do you think that comes from, from the public perspective angle? Is it that um, generally, uh, I, I mean, do people tend to have like, household pets is there like a sense of the countries um you know like in the uk we would say we're like a nation of animal lovers and so we can call out that hypocrisy when we look at factory farming is there like a sense of is it just lack of edgy of like knowledge on the subject or um education around the subject yeah i i think there is um, especially in latin american countries when when we talk when we look at brazil argentina and even colombia uh, the livestock industry is extremely powerful. 
Um, right. it, it has, um, yeah, it has a lot of economic power and political power. And I think um, that also reflects in the way the, 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 the mainstream media react. Um, and I think also because, uh, um, and I, I, I still see that, like I, I saw that uh, when I was a kid and, and, and when I did investigations, I think a lot of people, they, they can understand that cats and dogs feel pain and suffer but when they look at farmed animals, they're like, no, they don't feel any pain or they can take okay. it. They're, they're very okay. strong. They're very tough animals. They can take it. Um, so, yeah, I think they're, again, like we, we need to, to educate people because they, they do feel pain in the, and they suffer in very similar ways. Uh, but not many people are aware of it. Yeah. And if I can pick up something you said before, I think you said something quite interesting was one of the reasons for your vegan challenge was actually to find kind of vegans who then might come on and support Synergy and then also maybe become activists. Is that like a pipeline you guys have to almost get in people to kind of join the campaigns in the countries you work in? Is that like, is that, how did that come about? Were you just finding there wasn't enough people interested and in, we'll try this new strategy? And yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. Sure. So yes, when, when we started working um, in Latin America, we only had um, uh, cage-free campaigns. And then it was it was challenging to recruit activists, especially vegan activists, because many of them wouldn't agree with these campaigns to start with, or they would say, you know, it's fine, you can try to reduce suffering, but what about consumption? When are you gonna start telling people to stop eating animals? And we thought, well, well, if we also run vegan campaigns, uh, it's going to be easier to explain to them our theory of change and it's going to be easier to build our community of activists. So that was the, the initial idea. And, and we did see a positive reaction when, when we started working more with vegan challenges and engaging our community of volunteers and activists in the challenges as well. Um, and, and nowadays, the, uh, the, the way it works is that they, um, people who sign up to participate in the vegan challenges, they, they, they stay there for 21 days. And when they finish, they, they have the possibility to join our general mailing lists. And then they, they start receiving regular updates from us. They can become volunteers. So, yeah, there is a... There is a series of emails to engage them with other campaigns and programs uh, and, and also offer them opportunities uh, to be part of the organization as volunteers. Mm. And you found this actually increased engagement with the campaigns by, by quite a lot, I assume? Yes, I think so. You can see that. Mm. And also right. larger mailing lists as well. Uh, when we went to mobilization, uh, we, we have more people to mobilize. Are people apprehensive about joining things like protests? Do you find that you get quite a lot of action if it's online, but if there are difficulties with protesting and challenges with the police, is there kind of more hesitancy for the more physical actions? Yeah, there is. Um, I, I found it like really interesting because the last um, street action we did in Brazil, like Brazil is, is, is a very um, easy country to do actions. We don't get any problems with the police. Uh, people react nicely when they talk to us. But actually, we had, I think we had three new activists coming to the action and, and they thought they could, they could, there was a very high risk that they would get arrested. 
Oh, wow. Wow. So like we, we explain to people very clearly when we start the action, we are not doing anything illegal. This is totally legal. Mm. Um, if the police come, uh, we will talk to them, but we have never been asked to stop or to leave the place because what we are doing is totally fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it is a challenge. And um, because of the pandemic, it became very hard to meet per, uh, people in person. Uh, but right. now we're uh, making like um, more efforts to to get volunteers and activists to meet before they go to an action so we can fully explain to them that what we do is legal, it's safe, it has been reviewed by lawyers. Um, yeah, so there, there is a lot of education efforts uh, going on as well. Yeah, sure. Well, it's great that those people are committed enough to come even knowing they might be arrested. It's yeah. like, clearly these are <laughs> committed volunteers. You should get them, get them in the team. Yeah. That sounds great. <laughs> well, maybe moving on a tiny bit into your work in Asia. And so obviously you, got, you guys are focused mainly in Latin America. And then how did the spark to move into Asia come about? And obviously two very different continents, very different cultures. And how did you even find people uh, in the Asian countries you work in? And yeah, how did that process start? Yeah, so I remember I went to the Open Wing Alliance Summit in 2018. And, and that year, there was uh, a lot of the presentations were focused on, on, on telling the groups there, the audience, about the importance of Asia. When we look um, at the number of animals being farmed in Asia, if we really want to help animals um, anywhere, like we, we have to, we cannot neglect um, Asia. Mm. And I was very touched by that. Um, and I decided to, because we already had the mission to, to work in, in global South countries and not only in Latin America. So I, I could find um, a donor who was interested uh, to support our expansion to Asia. Um, and then we conducted research. We decided it would be in Thailand and Indonesia because of the size of the egg industry in these countries. In, in, in Southeast Asia, they're uh, the largest egg producers. Malaysia is very close to Thailand as well, but we decided to go uh, to Thailand. Um, and then like the, the plants were looking very good. We already had um, legal reviews. We had very qualified uh, local lawyers telling us that it would be safe to work there uh, with even with pressure campaigns. And I remember like I started thinking, I think this is crazy, a bit too crazy. To, <laughs> to for, and I remember I couldn't sleep properly uh, for, for some weeks and oh. And then I was like, well, I think I, I have to go there. I have to go there and, and see how things work and, 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 and be there to, to build the teams. Um, so I spent nearly six months, uh, uh, three in Indonesia and, and nearly three in Thailand. And when I got there, uh, of course, the, the movement was very small. I, I didn't meet a lot of people. But yeah. I, I did meet um, very special people, very um, bold activists um, who are still working with us. And I was very inspired. Uh, and we knew progress wouldn't be easy. We knew it would be yeah. slow. Uh, but we do see a lot of progress coming from these two countries. So I think it has it has been worthwhile. I, I don't regret. I'm actually very, um, um, yeah. Um, happy that that we took the challenge uh, to to expand to Asia. 
And what were those first kind of main reservations? Why were you kind of unsure, I guess, in those first moments as to whether it was going to be successful? Yeah, I think that the two things I was mostly concerned about were cultural differences, um, yeah, how, how we would work with, uh, with different cultures and how we would manage um, the time difference, because the time difference is mm. uh, like it's 10 to 12 hours. Uh, right. So it is challenging. Um, so with culture, I thought that after, um, you know, uh, spending six months there, I was kind of um, familiar enough with the cultures uh, to, to make it work, which was yeah. a mistake. I was not. I learned <laughs> after that it takes uh, much more time uh, yeah, to get familiar and, and to understand cultures um, yeah, well enough uh, to make it work. Uh, but anyway, it, it, it worked. Um, I think uh, you just have to be uh, very uh, conscious and very respectful. If, if you do that, you, you learn with time without um, creating conflict or, or hurting people. And I think we were able uh, to do that. And with the time difference, what really helped is that some of our directors are based in Europe. They are from the Global South, but they are based in Europe. So they, they could uh, support Asia uh, during their working hours as well. I think that, oh, that made okay. a big difference. On the cultural side, I think you were saying you thought six months was enough. Now you were like, no, definitely wasn't enough. What was the thing <laughs> you realized or you thought you knew that in retrospect, you were like, actually, I didn't have that figured out. Was there something in particular? Yes. Uh, so I think in 2000 and. 20 or 2021, we decided to take um, every, everybody, we, we got together during our retreat and we had a training uh, um, called uh, cross-cultural training that mm. shows um, um, cultural differences in, in the workplace. And when, when they, they, they showed like all the different cultures we had and how they behave differently, that to me was like, well, that explains a lot of things <laughs> we were not able to, to figure out before. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's that's when I saw that I I I I did I was not so familiar with with all the cultures we we had in the organization. And then last year, what we did during our retreat was to invite our national teams to present, to like to, to give a presentation about their cultures, what what is what right. what what is really nice, what are the difficulties, what are, what are the challenges, the things they like and they dislike, uh, and and that was very nice. So I think we we learned that we need to, uh, yeah, to 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 create more and more opportunities for people to. Yeah, to, to talk about their cultures and for, for everybody to, to get familiar with them. So we will keep doing it. Uh, it's, it's an ongoing effort. And it's obviously part of the, um, the criteria for the animal charity evaluators assessment, which obviously shows, even though you have like a very wide ranging and complex um, set of cultures within the organization it's obviously seems to be working well having had that recommendation um and you've had that now for is it two years mm -hmm. yes the last one the standout was charity. Yeah, we were assessed last year evaluated last year yeah great well uh, on the on the growth side of things so yeah i think i mentioned the beginning so yeah synergy has grown quite a lot how many people are full-time employed or like full-time equivalent yeah we have 55 people Wow. wow, cool. So it's pretty big. And you started in 2017. So that's, 
pretty big growth. So yeah, do you want to like, how has that been for you? How has that been the main focus of your time? I guess the last two years, like how do we manage this <laughs> growing complex, uh, yeah. amazing thing? Yeah, it is, it is very challenging. It's, it's not easy, uh, to, to grow so fast. Um, I think that the two main challenges, the, the first challenge, and, and that's, um, that's also because of where we work is to find talent. So our recruiting uh, can take time. Uh, it, it takes time uh, to, to find people. Uh, so what we did in the beginning, we were very focused on finding people who were already mission aligned. So we only recruited vegans, for example. Mm. And with time, we learned that um, we needed to be more flexible and, and welcome people um, who like the cause or, or who are not very familiar with the cause, but who show um, interest to learn and, and, and to become more aligned. So I think that that helped a lot. Interesting. Um, we also, in the beginning, it was also very challenging because we had our teams, our directors uh, doing the recruiting themselves. So they had to run campaigns, run programs, uh, do everything and recruit people at the same time. And that was surely uh, not sustainable. I think we, we should have, have created uh, what we call our people and operations department uh, before. Uh, I think we took mm. too long to do it. Right. Uh, and nowadays, I think this department is so crucial in the organization because it is the department that is uh, taking care of recruitment, uh, training, uh, building a strong culture. I think when we talk about um, our ability to work with different cultures is, is also because we have our internal culture, uh, our internal like cultural um, culture pillars, and these pillars are are reviewed uh, in every feed, feed, feedback cycle we have. So every three months, all of us will look at our culture pillars and see how we are respecting them um, or, or making them uh, be very present in, in, in our uh, daily uh, activities. Mm. The other thing I learned um, about quick growth is that uh, you, you need your leaders to be trained. Uh, what we did in the beginning, um, we have we have uh, our team is very young, I would say, and and not very experienced. So we hired, uh, including myself. I had never been in a leadership position before, so I, mm. I was not sure. trained and prepared at all. Uh, but what we did was to hire a team of directors um, who is very passionate and very talented. They're great at what they do. They really know what they have to do in terms of doing, but we didn't have a lot of knowledge and a lot of training when it comes um, to how do you lead people? Uh, you know, how do you um, coordinate your teams? How do you keep your teams healthy and productive? Uh, and I remember the first leadership training we had, it was in 2020. And I think we are having our, we had our second one last year and our third one this year. And what we see is that even like after all these years, we are learning so much and, mm. and we should have made this a priority from the very beginning. Uh, so I think I, I had this kind of um, understanding that 
you have natural leaders, if you are very skilled and very knowledgeable about the, the department or the area you're leading, uh, you're good enough to be a leader, but that's not, that's not true. There are so many other things you, you can learn uh, when you get uh, leadership training. So I think that was a, a key lesson as well. That's great. I feel like we had a um, kind of a similar conversation with Dave Coleman Heidi from the Humane League about their growth and how that felt going from something very small to um, quite rapid growth. Um, and I wonder for you as a leader, having come from the journalism background and then being one of the only members of Synergy Animal, and so I guess being very hands-on in terms of the campaigning and um, feeling very uh, a sort of tight-knit culture, I imagine. How do you feel as a leader now um, having a role that might feel quite far removed from that sometimes, I imagine, um, where it's more uh, top level managing managers rather than being in the like nitty gritty, more kind of journalism um, style of work. How does that feel for you as an individual? That's a good question. (laughs) Um, I think that the great thing about being a leader, that the thing I enjoy the most is that you're there to help people and to coach people and and that's very rewarding when you see that um, you were able like to to share knowledge and experience that will help people grow for me like when i see people growing and developing uh it's a very beautiful thing i I really enjoy the feeling that um, i'm being able to contribute somehow um So I think that's, yeah, that's that's what I like the most about being in a leadership position. But I, I have to confess that I, I miss, uh, for example, content, content creation, uh, creating like creative, like new ways to campaign. I'm, 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 I love campaigning as well. So when I can and I have time, I... I don't do it anymore, but I, I try to coach people a lot and, and, and share ideas and, and participate in, in brainstorm, uh, brainstorming meetings. So I, that's how I, yeah, I, I find a way to do a little bit of both. That's great. In terms of the managing growth side of things, yeah, I think we'd love to hear more about that. I think particularly you were saying you have these uh, kind of like new, really talented, really amazing people who maybe haven't had loads of leadership experience in the past. And I guess you mentioned leadership training was a really useful thing for them to to do basically basic skill up is there anything else you've done to kind of motivate and inspire people to take on more leadership skills or like or execute these managerial roles more effectively yeah so we we created uh, and that's not only for leaders or managers i think one one thing we did uh, that was really successful was to create um, a, a development planning the organization so Every year, um, everybody in the organization has an allowance. And with this money, they can choose what courses they want to take uh, and what areas they, they need to develop themselves. I think that that created a very good um, learning um, environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the top of that, um, we as an organization, we also define what are the, the, the learning priorities for individuals or departments and and these training opportunities are they're not part of the self-development plan they are extra and and we cover the costs for them uh so i think these are are yeah these are the the two main things we are doing right now 
And with leadership training, uh, we decided it's it's going to be a, a continuous effort. So we are going to have um, leadership training uh, opportunities uh, happening every year. So right Great. now we have one. We have two actually, two two different um, uh, leadership training uh, initiatives happening. Nice. Very cool. So sounds like there's loads of like institutional investment, organizational investment in developing new leaders. So I think yeah, that's a really exciting thing to hear. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's it's really important. Um, I also decided to take um, an, an MBA in positive psychology, and it has a lot oh, cool. to do with uh, team management. And I think we, we decided to be a, a development organization in the sense that learning never stops. And hmm. uh, what is really good about organizations that go in this direction is that usually people don't feel demotivated because when you learn new things and when you can implement the new things you learned, you're usually more engaged, more satisfied. Uh, you have more energy, energy. Like when you, when you get stuck and you just keep doing the same things, you, you tend to get bored. But when you're learning and trying new things, you it's easier for people to, to be more satisfied and, and more engaged as well. Definitely. I feel like I imagine your optimism as a leader also contributes to that. I think, um, as you say, the movement is and can be fairly depressing right it's like we're looking at footage of horrors consistently and talking about challenging topics so I think also bringing that optimism into the team and instilling that in the leaders um, will also be be contributing to that really healthy culture and sense of development um, yeah. do you feel like that optimism is is kind of echoed in the movement do you have close relationships with um other leaders of, of big organizations in this space and do you think there that that sense of optimism is echoed yes I, I think so i think um and this actually like research shows that um uh, positive uh leaders um are crucial uh for for success um and I think what is what is important to say is that it's not like toxic positivity, that it's like, oh, everything is mm. beautiful. There are no problems. <laughs> I'm going to keep thinking positive and everything is going to be all right. No, it's, it's actually uh, uh, you have to train yourself. You have to train yourself to say, OK, here we have a problem, but we also have opportunities. And myself as a leader, I'm going to deliver the message to my team in the way that they understand the challenges, but they also feel inspired um, to believe that they, they can reach uh, their, their goals. They, they, can, um, uh, they can be successful, although it's going to be challenging. So yeah. it's, it's more about being mindful and, and self-aware um, about how you deliver messages uh, to, to, to the organization and also about... Um, how you you talk to yourself because as you said like our work can be very challenging it can be very depressing and i think when when you start uh feeling challenged emotionally you you have to kind of invite yourself to to also look at all the positive things that have happened all the things you have achieved yeah uh, yeah so it's kind of internal and external and it can be trained it, 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 it's not uh, a some people have it more as a natural skill, but others can be trained as well. So uh, leadership training can help with that too. 
and it, it is contagious. Uh, I think it's contagious <laughs> internally and externally. When 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 you interact with other organizations, uh, you you can also have a, yeah an influence there. Yeah. Maybe moving on to next steps. So, what's in the store for Synergy NML going forward in terms of plans over the next few years? Whether it's new countries, new campaigns, anything? Yeah, I'd love to hear more about what's in the works. Yeah. So. Um... I think we are going to slow down a little bit now. I, I don't think we are going to keep growing as fast as, as we did in, in previous years, which is good. Uh, Seems responsible. Think, Seems good. Yeah, <laughs> a bit of stability is, is, is good. Uh, so what, what we are planning to do, we are not planning to launch any new programs or initiatives. Uh, I think the, the most important thing we are doing right now is to to bring more resources and autonomy to our national teams. So we are empowering our national teams with more, more resources and, and more autonomy. Great. Um, and we are also uh, in Latin America, uh, we are also trying some new territories. So we are, uh, we don't have teams in these countries. We have only one person working in Ur Uruguay, Peru and Ecuador. And we mm. want to see uh, how favorable favorable um, uh, companies, not companies, the the, the, the ag sector is going to be towards uh, starting uh, to transition to cage-free systems in this country. So we are trying uh, with very few resources to see uh, if they are promising countries or not. Cool. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think, yeah, maybe that question was leading towards, I think like, not growth isn't always good. It's like, if you have a, a, set, a set of like effective programs, there's, there's no need to necessarily expand besides that because you, you know what works. You want to stick to your bread and butter, so to speak, and make sure you refine those as much as possible. And also, like you said, maybe if you don't need to grow super fast every year because you want stability, you want to be sustainable long-term and you want to be actually nurturing staff and growing leadership. So I think that makes loads of sense. Yeah, definitely. Amazing. Well, um, we're just going to finish with some kind of quick fire questions just to um, get as much from you as we can within the time frame. Um, I'd love to know maybe if there's something on the top of your head for kind of the, the biggest mistake you've made or learning that you've had that you would recommend um, to others to um, help other leaders or organizations avoid these challenges in the future. Yeah, I think I think I I mentioned that already. I think the the biggest mistake I made was to not to offer more resources and and training to our leaders, uh, and and just to give a bit more more detail. Uh, I think what happened is that uh, we had very passionate and and very skilled leaders. Uh, but they, they didn't have uh, any training on things like developing, how to develop team members, how to delegate, um, how to be focused on goals, how to, to be like goal oriented. Mm. And, and when you have very passionate and very skilled people who used to be great doers before and you don't give them these leadership skills, what they will do or what they tend to do is to try to do most things themselves. And they can get very tired. They, uh, we had cases that people were, were close to being uh, burnt out. Uh, they had to take breaks. Uh, so, and, and, and also what you do uh, to the team members is that you send them a message that 
they don't have enough autonomy. Uh, there right. are a lot of approvals. Um, they yeah. want to do something new, but they don't know how. And you just keep telling them, oh, you have to do this, but you, you don't learn to develop them. And that's also mm. frustrating. So it, it's going to be frustrating for the entire organization, for the leaders and for the people who are being uh, uh, managed by, by these leaders. So I think that was the, the biggest mistake. Uh, and I, I, I wish I, I, I knew uh, and, and we had more leadership training happening from, from the very beginning. Yeah, makes sense. Thank you. Um, for the next one, uh, what's a view you hold that you think many other animal advocates might disagree with you on? Um, I don't know, because I think our movement is, is, is um, I think we, we have a lot of different opinions in the movement. So I, I don't know if I'm the only one who thinks that. Uh, so I think um, as a movement, sometimes we spend a lot of, a lot of time uh, and energy discussing what we should be doing, what is effective, what is not effective. And what I think is that we have a very big and co complex problem uh, uh, and I think different strategies should be used and, and they speak to different audiences. And we should, we should just be like um, aware that we, we don't know exactly how we are going to succeed. Uh, so uh, mm. we should be all trying uh, in different and, and productive ways. I think we should reduce infighting and, and be more op open to, yeah, to new strategies or to different strategies and, and keep the movement united. Well said. Nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think ho hopefully we can all agree on the last bit that we should all stop fighting <laughs> each other. I, I hope that's not too controversial. Uh, but yeah, I, I totally agree with what you said. I think we've spoken about it before with Dave that at least there's sometimes, yeah, like you said, our, our problem is very complex. We don't, we can't really measure the outcomes we care about. Maybe we don't even know if we're making progress or that we can only look back after a few years of doing a campaign to see has it actually been working. So it kind of makes sense. To experiment early on because our movement's still very young like 20 or 30 years kind of in the bulk yeah. of it so yeah there's a long fight ahead of us so it's, it's good to figure out the best strategies now and then we can double down on them in the future um yeah and then um maybe relatedly is there something particular you think more advocates uh, should be working on or could be working on in terms of these different strategy tactics you're interested to see more of yeah, I think, um, as, as I mentioned before, um, I think most of the movement, at least in, in the global south, is focused on, on cage-free campaigns, on, on trying to reduce the suffering of animals. And I think we should continue. I think reducing suffering is very important. I think it's a very pragmatic step we need to take for, for these animals. But I'm also very excited to see the progress we are having with our institutional meat reduction programs, which are the programs that invite institutions um, to consume less animal products and, and serve more plant-based meals. I think the two things should be, uh, yeah, should be combined. We should have mm. like the, the, the two approaches uh, being used. Um, at the same time, so I, I, I would love to see more of that being done in Global South countries because it, it does seem to be uh, uh, a strategy that is effective and it doesn't take a lot of time uh, to get wins, to secure wins. Great. Um, what's one bit of news that you're grateful for or um, excited about recently? Is there something that in the community that you've read upon that you think um, yeah, was particularly good to share? 
So some some weeks ago, uh, we had a federal court in Brazil um, that ruled that we should ban uh, the exports of, of live animals. Uh, Brazil is one of the largest um, exporters um, uh, in the world. So I think that's that's very significant. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's still not a, a final decision. It can be challenged, uh, and I think it will. I think the, the industry will, will, will mm. fight back. Uh, but I, I was re- I was really inspired, in, uh, excited and, and inspired to see that um, you know uh, legislation maybe can be approved. I think we we we, t- we try to think that it's too early to try to to secure legislation um, in global south countries. But when we see like this this first wins, uh, it brings me a lot of hope that it will be possible as well. That's very cool. It's funny we we're actually speaking with Emre from. Cafes is in Turkey. I don't know if you know him, but he also mentioned he's very excited about that same piece of news. So it's it's good. Everyone's feeling <laughs> excited about. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it's a very cool win. Um, and in terms of like media recommendations to people listening, is there anything you'd recommend? Books, podcasts, kind of anything you found useful and you'd love to share with others. Yes, there there are two books I recommend. Uh, the first one is Managing to Change the World. Um, it is a book written uh, for nonprofits on on how to manage their teams um, effectively, and it's um, it's it has like a lot of very specific advice. So it was very useful for for our leaders. So I recommend it uh, to anybody working in the movement. And it was written by by people who who had leadership positions in 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 nonprofit organizations. So it's it's very um, yeah, useful. Uh, and the second one, the second book I would recommend is called uh, Self-Compassion. It's written by an American psychologist called uh, Christine Neff. Hmm. And I think self-compassion is really important for all of us. Um, as, as we mentioned before, like it, it's a very um, difficult cause. Um, uh, we, we face many challenges. And um, for for we are so passionate about it, and sometimes we can be so hard on ourselves because we we wanted we want change so badly that we push ourselves too hard and kind of neglect ourselves and our needs, or we criticize ourselves too hard. Sure. And if we keep doing that, we are probably going to get depressed or, or suffer from from anxiety. And we won't be there to fight for animals. So I think our inner balance is, is very important. And, and I think the most important pillar uh, is, is self-compassion. So I would recommend that book. Wonderful. Thank you for that. That's great. And how can more people get involved in your work? We can um, share a link to your website. Um, but is there anything specific at the moment? Are you hiring? Do you need more volunteers or perhaps a funding gap? Yeah, so we we have an advisory board, um, and it's it's on our website. There you will have a page that um, shows the members of our advisory board. Uh, these are people who work, um, who have um, some some sort of expertise in in specific areas, and they they work as coaches or mentors. Um, mm. uh, uh, so they work very closely with our team. So if you have like any uh, specific skills uh, that you would like to share uh, with the team very closely, that that could be an opportunity. So we 
uh, we welcome applications. You you can check how you can apply on on the website. Uh, we also have an online community of online activists. Uh, it's uh, it's 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 done in English, uh, so you will receive uh, regular updates to to write to companies or banks and 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 ask them to do the right thing for animals. Uh, so it, it is an international community that anybody can mm. join. Um, and also, uh, you can donate to us uh, via our website. Uh, we accept donations from um, anywhere in the world. It's possible to do it with, with credit cards from anywhere in the world. Okay. So I think this would be the, the three main opportunities. Any, if you have any other ideas, anybody who is listening to us, if you have any other ideas about how you could help, uh, please get in touch. You can you can find the email uh, in, in the website as well to talk to us directly. Fab. Well, thank you so much. Um, I've loved seeing Synergia's development and growth over the last few years, particularly through the complexities of the pandemic, such a crucial time to try and grow, but, um, you know, just online without those um, more meaningful kind of in-person connections. But um, yeah, and for you as a leader to have taken that on and um, progressed mm. the team to the point that it is now um, is is just great. And I can't wait to see how you progress further. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity uh, to share more uh, about our work and, and the organization. And thank you for the kind words as well. Sure. Thanks for coming. Thank you.